Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And welcome back, everybody. We have a lot to tell you, having gone through this holiday weekend. We Mm -hmm. hope you had a nice one. We'll be talking about what might be the end of the honeymoon for the Biden administration, at least in some corners of the mainstream press. There's been a lot of criticism of the administration over the past few days. We're going to get into that and what it might mean. We'll talk about what we've learned about the Uvalde school uh, shooting and the Justice Department's investigation into how law enforcement handled it or didn't handle it. We'll talk about the results in Colombia's election and the surprising runoff that we're going to see. We'll talk about the EU's new sanctions package for Russia and how Turkey is pressing its political power right now to get what it wants in Syria, in the Aegean, and maybe elsewhere. Mm. The Justice Department on Friday afternoon announced that it would launch an investigation into the Uvalde, Texas Police Department after literally the entire department stood around and waited for somebody to bail them out while an 18-year-old gunman was inside the school murdering 19 children and two adults. Mm -hmm. To make matters worse, and we'll talk about this later in the show, the police initially announced that the gunman was dead only through their own heroics. That was a lie. Yeah. It was likely that their failure to enter the school contributed to the deaths of these defenseless children. So we'll see what the Justice Department investigation eventually finds. And, you know, also, I mean, well, there's contributing to the deaths. And then there's this is a possibility that's being raised. I mean, the police did go in, apparently. Right. Right. They went in, fired a bunch, then withdrew. Right. Right. Where did those... Bullets, bullets end up. go. Yep. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. But like at this point, there's this a lot point, that the, has the, to be investigated. Yeah, there here. really is. Michelle, um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's 82 year old husband uh, was arrested on Saturday evening for drunk driving. Why was he shot a bunch of times in the process? Believe it or not, he was not. Oh, hmm, weird. He was allowed to uh, get out of his car with his. Uh, oh, okay. With his hands up. All right, that's. Good. Good job, cops. Good job. (laughs) The incident occurred in Napa, California, where the Pelosi's own their own vineyard. That's so relatable. (laughs) Celebrities. They're just like us. (laughs) Paul Pelosi's 2021 Porsche. Oh, my God. Was crossing (laughs) State Route 29 when he struck a Jeep. Now, I'm sure you've been to Napa. I've been to Napa a couple of times. Mm -hmm. There are cops every 50 feet. Mm-hmm. On the highway. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's Napa yeah. and everybody goes there to drink wine yeah. and then they drink too much wine and then they drive drunk and then the cops pull them over and that's how they fund Napa County. Okay. His blood level, uh, blood alcohol level was 0.08. So he was he just at the line for being impaired. Right. So he was arrested, arraigned and held on $5,000 bail. Nancy Pelosi was on the East Coast giving a commencement address. I think it was at Princeton or something like that. Her office said that this was a personal matter and that she would have no comment. But then today in uh, Politico, it said that he was doubling down and he's going to fight this thing. It's like, dude, you're 82 years old. Yeah. It's a misdemeanor. Yeah. You're a multi, multi hundred millionaire. Yeah. Take your lumps. Take the driving license suspension. Hire a chauffeur, which you can clearly afford. And move on yeah. with your life. Because he, he hit another car, right? Yeah. He hit another car. So 
Yeah. A 47 year old guy uh, in a Jeep minding his own business driving up the road. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You might not get ever get that license back either. I mean, not at 82. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Good luck with that. Well, the biggest issues uh, are are really economic. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Uh, People are pretty unhappy at how much everything costs. And as we mentioned, even the press is starting to get snappy. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later because there's criticism coming from a lot of different directions. But uh, The Washington Post is is a big part of it. And they have a, a big article out today. Uh, offering a timeline of inflation and official reactions to it, uh, you know, coming to the conclusion that the Biden administration and the Fed misjudged the risks and didn't act until it was too late. And that what they're doing now is also not really having the effect that they want. Um, It says they missed the overall pattern of inflation because of the disconnected ways price increases uh, seemed to happen at first, sort of over here, and that's probably the pandemic, and over here, and maybe that's Russia, and, you know, didn't put it together and ended up getting caught flat-footed. And now we have home prices. This is a story I saw today. Home prices increased by 20%. Yeah. I'm on this, one March. of these Zillow uh, mailing lists mm-hmm. uh, just because I never took myself off. So... The house, the the beautiful, wonderful, you know, the final home that I thought I was going to have in my life that mm-hmm. I lost in my divorce. I keep getting price updates for it and I kick myself. Yeah. Because the way prices are going up. It's wild. How, it's I mean, crazy. We've got to be coming for a housing price uh, it, crash. It's a lot of people are, are prepared. Yeah. There's a lot of reports saying like this is going to come, which yeah. I think is great. You know, like would yeah. be nice to maybe be able to afford one at some point. I've mentioned that I, I live in a normal middle class uh, uh, neighborhood in mm-hmm. Arlington, Virginia. There's nothing special about my neighborhood except that it's on a subway line, mm-hmm. okay, which a lot of houses are in the Washington sure. area. Yeah. But how we've gotten this quickly to the point where literally every little 1800 square foot box in the neighborhood is Is $2 million. Yeah. I just don't get it. I don't understand. It's not, it isn't sustainable, right? Unless we all, as we, you know, were encouraged to do by the Wall Street Journal not too long ago, just accept being a nation of renters because whoever needs to feel comfortable and financially stable ever, Uh you know, in Uh their entire lifetime. Right. Yeah. So we have houses, house prices surging 20% in March. We have gas prices at a record high over Memorial Day weekend with an average retail price of more than four sixty a gallon, which is more than 50% higher than this time last year. And there was a CBS story pointing out that in some places in California, a gallon of gas cost more than the federal hourly minimum wage. It went to nine different pumps and found gas prices that were all uh, above $7.25, which, of course, oh is God. still the federal minimum wage, which is just a weird joke at this point. Um, I mean, that is not enough to get a beer or a glass of wine in some places, especially if you're expected to tip, which, of course, you must. Uh, it's wild. And our gas is still very cheap, you know? I mean, every time I oh, talk yeah. about gas prices, I, I feel the need to say, like, I think eventually as part of any transition to sustainable energy like gas prices is is, gas is going to end up being expensive right i feel like that's probably an inevitable part of the process right that's not the worst thing in the world in and of itself it's the fact that nobody has any money you know if if we're supposed to be tolerating these prices we should all have a little bit more in our pockets certainly more than 725 an hour right totally totally agree yeah 
You know, and you said a second ago, uh, gas is cheap. It is cheap mm-hmm. compared to most of the rest of the world. Right. You know, it's it's double or almost double in most Western European countries. Yeah. But, but you also don't have to drive everywhere. Exactly. You can That's afford why their to public live. transportation is yep. so is so good. Their trains are great. Everybody owns a little uh, scooter or a two-seater car. Or you can afford to live yeah. in a city center. That's right. I mean, and again, That's right. uh, these things are changing, right? I mean, the, the Irish election that we've talked about in, in mm-hmm. uh, Northern Ireland, a lot of that was about ha- uh, housing crisis, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I, I think that as uh, neoliberalism takes hold and the experiment, you know, continues and spreads, these things are these things are less protected in European countries than they have been in, in the past. But, you know, it's still a hell of a lot better than we have it here. Yeah. You can you can have really expensive gas if you don't have to get your car to your garage and drive 30 miles to the job. That's right. To, to your job because you can't afford to live within 25 miles of where you work. Yeah. And, see, so and here silly. in Washington now, if you if you graduate from college and you uh, have an entry level job somewhere or you work on Capitol Hill where people are famously underpaid, you can either live in a group house with mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. Or you can live in Woodbridge or Manassas yeah. or Germantown or, or, or yeah. Burke. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. And then spend an hour and a half commuting into town every day. And be grateful for it. That's Don't right. be so lazy and spend all your money on avocado toast and Starbucks. Uh, yeah. And so now, of course, we have Joe Biden meeting with Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, Biden laid out his economic plan in a, an opinion piece for The Wall Street Journal yesterday. Uh, and uh, in the past, he said he doesn't want to be seen as telling the Fed what to do since it is supposed to be independent. Right. But it is, you know, this idea that anything in Washington is purely apolitical and independent yeah. is just really silly. So it you, is, it's silly. you have the president who he nominates the chair of the reserve. Right. Mm-hmm. He's going to go sit down with this guy whose nomination depends on him. And now you have the president whose whose political party and political future is very much uh, affected by inflation right now, going to just sit down and talk about the problem, but no one's going to tell the other what to do. Right. Right. I mean, sure. Sure. You know, and it's not it, it's not like it's uh, out, out of, the, you know, out of left field for the president and the Fed chair to meet. It's just sort of all it's just a sort of silly pantomime. You know, just as an aside, when I first started working at the CIA, I had to go to the Fed to uh, to have a meeting to do a briefing. And it was actually harder to get into the Fed than it was to get into the CIA. And we had to be escorted. We had top secret SITK gamma security clearances. We had to be escorted from room to room. And I made a joke about it. Like, what What do you guys, what, is this where you keep the space aliens or something? Yeah. That security has to be so tight. And he said, it's all about information here. Yeah. It, it's all about information. Yeah. You know, if two guys are standing at the urinal in the in the men's room and they're talking about what they're planning to do to bring down inflation or to ease, you know, money pressure, whatever. Right. I mean, that's people could make billions and billions of dollars on that. Information. Oh, hey, speaking of that, John, there was <laughs> just a story today in Insider who's been on this for a while. Uh, that, you know, it it came out and listed another 63 members of Congress who have recently failed to properly report their financial trades as mandated by the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act of 2012 or the Stock Act. Um, And so Business Insider has been on this for a while. And it's one of these things that it's so weird, right? Because it feels like everybody just assumes they're doing this, right? 
Oh yeah, of course, of course. Sure. Members of Congress. How else? How else? Honestly, would they would they get that rich? Right? It's got to right. be insider trading or somehow trading on the power right. that they have. But yet, there's no one seems to be able to do anything about it. Well, you but know? Michelle, they have fines. There are fines in oh, place for yes, such a there thing. There are fines. This was amazing to me. <laughs> the fine, the fine for violating the Stock Act, if it doesn't just get waived completely, $200. May I interrupt you? Please. Breaking news. What? Michael Sussman was just acquitted. Oh, we didn't think we'd get a verdict so soon. No, we didn't. I thought that would take longer. Wow. Well, we bet wrong. Wow. Well, All right, you know, well. we, we, to our credit, we did say last week that Washington, D.C. is a jurisdiction where Hillary Clinton got 92 percent. Yeah. Ninety two percent. It's not so really supposed to. Affect it's it's not supposed to work that way. It's really not. But again, it's all not supposed to work that way. Right. So Joe Biden and Jerome Powell sit down and there's no politics involved. All these members of Congress. You know, on both sides of the aisle, right? In this story, you have Rand Paul, you have Diane Feinstein, you have uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you have Dan <laughs> Crenshaw. You know, this is absolutely bipartisan, all uh, violating this act, you know, yeah. at the drop of a hat, uh-huh. unconcerned about those $200 but there's fines. there's the fine. Yeah. Yes, yeah, $200. Yeah. Wow. We really, I'm so, okay. All right. I didn't. I I had I like I saw that the Amber Heard and uh, Johnny Depp thing had gone yes. into deliberations. So I was like, oh yeah, I remember the jury's got the Sussman trial now. Well, there we go. Okay. Wow, I'm shocked. Yeah, I am. Yeah, he pretty clearly was guilty. <laughs> yeah. No, it seems like de- definitely was. You know, he definitely did lie. Yeah. But I guess now it matters that. I don't know. I don't know. I, wow. I would like to see the. Wow. I would like to see a statement about that. Yeah. Um, can I give you one more uh, a little headline to lead us into our first segment here, where we, uh, you know, we are of course going to talk about EU sanctions. We're going to talk about Turkey and Syria. We're going to talk a little bit about some foreign policy. This is a, a catch by Aaron Mate, who does the great um, pushback show and does a lot of work for Gray Zone. Um, this is from the Times of London. Uh, it's a story about the war in Ukraine. Here's the headline, John. Azov Battalion drops neo-Nazi symbol exploited by Russian propagandists. I mean, I don't even know. Like, yeah, okay. It's just like the problem isn't the, the problem isn't the obvious Nazi ideology. Mm-hmm. That's not the problem. The problem is people are paying too much attention to that symbol. That is wild. Yeah. This that is, that this is, is incredible. This is the sort of upside down world we live in. But congratulations to Azov, really uh, doing a good job whitewashing. Whitewashing yeah. their uh, their whole ideology, you know, their their reason for being without even actually having to do any of it. Like they're not even they're not disavowing any of their previous beliefs. Like, in, you know. You can go talk to the leader of the Azov Battalion in a bunker that has white power written on the outside. It's not like they're saying, right. hey, guys, we changed our minds. No, no, no. We're just getting around to We're just not going to use the symbol We're anymore. We're just going to hide this symbol. We're not going to put it right on our uniforms. Uh-huh. Everybody's going to be fine with that. Yeah, yeah. Remember, the Washington Post said that we are weakening democracy by talking about these issues. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. All right, well. I'm going to process this Sussman decision for for a minute. We're going to take a little break here and come back to talk some foreign policy. And who knows, maybe some more Sussman. Uh, We'll see what we get into. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The European Union over the weekend agreed on a partial ban on Russian oil imports, covering two-thirds of all oil coming from Russia. Gas prices in the EU are going to skyrocket. Fighting in eastern Ukraine continued to intensify over the long weekend, our long weekend anyway. Russian authorities said yesterday that artillery strikes along the front line in Donetsk and Luhansk reached, quote, maximum intensity, unquote, as Russian troops tried to break through Ukrainian defenses. A Ukrainian defense ministry spokesman said that the Russian strategy was to encircle Ukrainian troops in the Donbass to force them to surrender. In other news, President Biden said on Monday that he would not provide Ukraine with any rockets or missiles that could reach the Russian territory. The president said that the United States supports the defense of Ukraine, but would not condone offensive actions against Russia. And Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov addressed rumors over the weekend that President Putin is ill. Rumors in the mainstream Western media have said that Putin has cancer, he has Parkinson's disease, and a host of other issues. Lavrov said, quote, you know, President Putin appears in public every day. You can see him on TV screens, read his speeches, listen to his speeches. I do not think that any sane person can see in this person signs of some kind of illness or ailment. I leave this on the conscience of those who spread such rumors despite daily opportunities to ensure who looks how in this world, unquote. We're joined by Jim Jatras. Jim's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Welcome back, Jim. Hi, John. Hi, Michelle. It's great to be back with you. Hi. Always great to have you, Jim. I want to begin, if I could, by asking you to walk us through what we're seeing on U.S. news networks related to the Ukraine war. Every day we hear reports that the Ukrainians are winning, unquote, that the Russians have been taken by surprise by Ukrainian toughness, that the rusting hulks of Russian tanks are scattered all over Ukraine. But that doesn't really seem to be true. The Russians are making clear advances in Donbass. They've chosen to not use their most sophisticated and dangerous weapons against the Ukrainians, with the exception, I think, two times of these hypersonic um, missiles. What is exactly happening on the ground? Is is what we're seeing what the Russian plan is? Well, you know, it's always I'm always, I'm always a little bit amused when I hear about the Russian plan as though anybody in the West knows what the Russian general staff Yeah, good point. and is. And we heard early on in this war that oh the Russian plan is falling apart. Well, from people who didn't know what the plan was going to be. And I don't think the rest of us do either, but we can look at indications that we are sure we heard all, heard all this rah, 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 the Ukrainians are winning, the Russians are really taking in the pants. And meanwhile, you saw a, a slow, inexorable movement of the Russian forces to trap and then to finish off pockets of Ukrainian forces or force them to surrender. And I think that's what we're seeing now with respect to the Donbass army. I, maybe in some ways, the Ukrainians were the victims of their own propaganda or the propaganda of their Western partners, that somehow they're winning, they're winning, they're winning, instead of extracting their forces from the Donbass. When they still had a chance, they're leaving them there either to surrender or die. And I think that's the point we're getting to now. And then what happens then when we start, you know, because we We've been seeing the stories now, even from the Washington Post and the New York Times and other former cheerleaders of the Ukrainian war effort, that 
things are going rather badly. They're calling up reservists, people who don't know, have any combat experience, don't know how to fight, and they're just being sent out as cannon fodder. It's, it's really, frankly, it's criminal what's, what's being done by the Ukrainian regime with the urging of their Western uh, backers that is just going to result in more Ukrainian deaths. Yeah. Jim, has the Russian endgame changed at all in your view? We've been told from the beginning of this war that the Russians wanted Luhansk and Donetsk to be independent Republicans with uh, republics rather within the Russian Federation, and they want to keep Crimea. Has that changed at all? Again, we don't really know what their intentions were going. Mm. Whether they were limited to the Donbass, Crimea, they assert is already theirs, or whether it was broader from the start. Uh, you know, there, there seemed to have been a misstep at the beginning where their message was, this is just a police action, we're not staying permanently, which means that local people who might have been supportive of the Russians were risking their lives. Yeah coming out and support because, hey, if you're going away again, we're not going to take that chance. They've rectified that now, it seems to me. You look at places like Kherson and Zaporozhye, where they're introducing the ruble, they're, they're you know, putting the Russian flag up in place of the Ukrainian flag. They're, they're clearly not leaving. Mm-hmm. And I think, at, my guess is, at the very least, from Kharkov to Odessa, all that's going to stay under Russian control, whether it's either in the form of separate republics or actually at some point annexed to Russia. And frankly, I'm beginning to wonder, is Zelensky some kind of secret Russian agent? Because the longer they keep this war going, I think the more territory the Russians will take. I think you're probably right. Uh, many of my Ukrainian friends uh, fear that one of the costs of this war will be the loss to the Russians of Odessa, which would make Ukraine a landlocked country. Uh, The Russians have never said anything about occupying Odessa, let alone annexing it. Do you see that as a possibility? If the Russians aren't facing uh, too much pushback in the south along the Black Sea, can you envision the Russians moving into Odessa? Not just envision it. I'd be shocked if they didn't do it. Really? Again, you, you don't go through all of this to then half-correct whatever they see the problem as. And remember, we also have that that little strip of land along the Moldovan uh, border. Yes. Nesrovia, or Transnistria, as it's called. Uh, Why why would the Russians go to all this trouble and not extend their rule over to to Transnistria, which then basically cuts Odessa off from the rest of Ukraine? I don't see any scenario where they don't take Odessa and basically the entire Black Sea coast. If they do, uh, don't do that, the reason I'd be surprised is because, frankly, Frankly, from their point of view, it would be really stupid. Okay, so let's talk about that. If if that happens, that's going to upset the West, right? The United States, Western Europe, and there would have to be sanctions involved or some sort of longer-term economic strategy. What's what's left that the that the West can do to the Russians that they haven't already done or haven't already implemented to try to uh, to damage the Russian economy? Exactly right. You know, hang for a penny, hang for a pound. Everything mm-hmm. the West has got that they can throw at Russia, they already are throwing at Russia. And of course, we've seen the extent to which most of these things have actually been inflicting more harm on the Western, especially the European economies, than it has been on Russia. So again, that's another reason why the Russians are probably would be well advised to pursue a maximalist course in terms of what their demands are, especially since Ukraine refuses to sue for peace, as any rational government would have done in their situation. Yes. So, yeah, I, 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 don't, I, I think the only thing that's going to change the sanctions picture is that when this war ends, 
sooner or later, and I think it's going to be sooner rather than later, and then the Europeans see how much damage they're doing to themselves. At some point, they start to wake up and smell the kvass and say, this, this has been bad for us. You know, I, I think we're already beginning to see the beginning of that. There was a, somebody in Belgium, I believe, who recently called for suspension of the sanctions. I, I think at some point, the Europeans are going to have to realize that just simply following diktat from Washington is damaging to their interests. As yeah. I say, we're willing to fight to the last Ukrainian military fight to the last European economically. Uh, and at some point, if they have any sense of self-preservation, they're going to have to d- depart from this policy. Well, that that sort of leads to my next question, which is uh, this has to be a, a major long-term drag on on the economy of, uh, of Western Europe. Uh, already they have insane energy prices and they have um, they've they've suffered really from slow uh, economic growth for the last decade, decade and a half. Uh, it seems to me that the only way to pull themselves out of this is to is to do something about these sanctions so that they can begin trading again and they can begin buying Russian uh, oil and gas. Exactly right. But the Western policy at this point is to say how much pain can the Russians take? Really, the question is how much pain can the Europeans take? That's it. Because I don't think the Russians really care that much about that. I mean, uh, I, I think they would like to leave the door open to an, uh, an improvement of their relations with Europe, but they're not counting on it. I think they're looking east, they're looking south, they're looking at the rest of the world that has not followed the, the the line coming from Washington, London, Warsaw, and some of the other more militant capitals. And, uh, and I, you know, at some point, you know, I, again, I can't predict it, John. At some point, you think that cooler heads will prevail so far – we're seeing a, 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 a bunch of suicidal nonsense, frankly. President Biden said over the weekend uh, that he would not provide Ukraine with missiles or rockets that can reach into Russian territory. Uh, that seems a little difficult since you can throw a rock from Ukraine and hit Russian territory. Uh, what was the announcement meant to do? Was it meant more to not sort of upgrade the level of the conflict? Uh, what do you expect other NATO countries to do? I think I think there's been an attempt in the West to kind of walk a fine line between how directly involved we are in this war, but not too obviously, not too damagingly, that the Russians would feel that they have no choice but to engage militarily with NATO forces directly. And I think that in the case of, of these long-range missiles, that that's something that even the, the Biden administration, as incompetent as it, as it, as it is, realizes is a, is a bridge too far if yeah. they do that, and the Ukrainians were to fire these missiles deep into Russian territory, not just, you know, right on the border regions where they have launched them limited strikes with helicopters and so forth, that that could result in a much broader European Mm -hmm. war. Even they're not that crazy. Jim, talks between Finnish and Swedish delegations and the Turkish government on Finnish and Swedish NATO accession ended in failure last week. The Finnish prime minister said that sooner or later, the two countries are going to be in NATO. But the Turks said not so fast. And the Turkish media said that it's just not going to happen. The Turks want at least F-16s and F-16 spare parts from the United States. They also want a whole bunch of Turkish and Kurdish dissidents who live in Sweden to be returned to Turkey. How do you see this playing out, especially in view of the fact that the Turks have also been very provocative with the Greeks over the last week, saying that um, as many as 500 uninhabited islands in the Aegean Sea that belong to Greece are rightfully Turkey's. And that they can envision 
a Turkish military presence on those islands? You know, there, there's a lot there, John. It's, you know, to start with, as far as the, the, the demands the tur- Turks have, I could see the aircraft and the aircraft parts, some concession on yeah. I think it'd be very hard for the Finns and Swedes to deliver to the Turks some of these Kurdish dissidents that the Turks consider terrorists. I, I, I don't know if Erdogan is simply trying to extract his pound of flesh out of his Western partners and then will will say, okay, fine, we'll let them in. Or maybe he's decided that the wind is blowing toward Eurasia anyway. Mm-hmm. Better get on board with the Russians and the Chinese and, and where the rest of the world is going. And who cares what his Western partners think, especially if there are other countries inside NATO that maybe a little more quietly don't want Finland and Sweden in either and are willing to back up the Turks, you know, at least uh, behind closed doors if they hold the line on, on keeping Sweden and Finland out. So I don't know if that's necessarily inevitable. As far as uh, uh, Turkish, uh, let's use the word aggression, Aegean, uh, that that always remains a possibility given the disparity between Greece's and Turkey's military power. And this is where Greece finds itself in a very difficult circumstance because they're then putting all their eggs in the basket of whether the Americans, because, you know, NATO can't come to their assistance because Turkey's part of NATO. It puts the Greeks in a very difficult position. Yeah, it does indeed. Could you see a scenario where Turkey was no longer a member of NATO? There's been some talk in the Turkish press that it's time for Turkey to walk away, to focus more on Eurasia. Um, That seems crazy to me. Um, If if you're Turkey, you want to be in NATO because it gives you a seat at the table. But can you envision a, a time when Turkey is no longer a member of NATO? I don't think it's likely. I mean, I suppose it's conceivable, but the reason I don't think it's likely is that even if the Turks felt totally alienated from the rest of the alliance, why would they leave? Because they not only have a seat at the table, as you say, but they have veto power. Yeah. And that way that they can veto any uh, decision made by NATO that's adverse to their interests. And at the same time, remember, there's no expulsion mechanism. That's right. NATO. There's no way for the other countries to expel Turkey. So Turkey could easily stay in as a spoiler on any kind of NATO action that would be harmful to their interests. Why would they leave? I certainly wouldn't if I were in their shoes. Jim, we're seeing a larger and larger number of Republican lawmakers beginning to question uh, military aid to Ukraine. It's happening relatively quickly with the war just having begun in February. Is this going to become a problem for Joe Biden as we approach midterm elections? Do you envision a time approaching where he has trouble getting these huge appropriations uh, through Congress for aid to Ukraine? It's conceivable, but I don't think that's going to happen very quickly, and it may not happen at all. When we talk about large numbers of Republicans, we're still talking about a minority. Yes the Republican caucus and the leadership of the of the Republicans in the House and the Senate is still firmly on board with 100 percent support of Kiev against Moscow. You know, remember Mitch McConnell was saying this is the most important thing uh, on, you know, most important issue for America uh, to support Ukraine. Yeah. So I, I don't really see this. Unfortunately, it, it looks to me more like a split within the Republican Party with essentially, you might say, the Trump populist wing right. basically saying, oh, hey, we don't have a dog in this fight. Why are we getting involved versus, you might say, the neocon globalist wing, which is in in lockstep with the Democrats. Actually, that that leads to my next question. There's this conversation taking place within the Republican Party over this war, and it seems to me that there's been a a great deal of role reversal. It's the Democrats that are pro-war, pro-intervention, and it's the Republicans who are beginning to question 
the wisdom of foreign entanglements. You're right. It's the populist Republicans. It's certainly not the neoconservative Republicans. But I'm wondering if this is the start of the kind of political sea change that we saw in 1932, for example, when the parties essentially changed positions on major issues or or 1980 when working class Americans, many working class Americans moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party to vote for Ronald Reagan. Do you do you see that kind of a change taking place here where where on issues of war and peace, the parties are going to switch positions? It, it could be. It's, you know, if we go back decades, you know, once upon a time, there was the reputation that Republicans were the party of peace and the Democrats were the party of war. And if you look back in the, you know, the earlier 20th century, late 19th century, it was always the Democrats beating the drum for war. Yeah. Republicans who were hesitant because it's bad for business. You know? Right. Uh, that that changed a lot during the Cold War because let's face it, some of the some of the Democrats, especially the left of the party, were kind of soft on communism. So they were, you know, the Vietnam was bad and Central America was bad. So they, uh, they, they were less militant on some of these issues. But what's amazing to me, John, is how the the left wing of the Democratic Party has become as much warmongers as anybody else. There is no Democratic peace yes. movement anymore. Yeah, the peace movement on the left to speak of. Is there one building on the right, and can it take over the Republican Party? Again, I'm skeptical of that. I think we're still looking at a split within the Republican Party. I'd hope the Republican parties can can return more to its pro-peace roots, but I'm not holding my breath, especially since I think we're looking not only at a breakdown of the party system, but probably a, a real breakdown of our constitutional systems on a broader scale. I, I hate to say, but uh, I, I agree with you. One last question, Jim. Uh, the Republicans are, are widely favored to win back control of the House and are at this point likely to win back control of the Senate, at least according to Politico and the Cook Political Report. Um, Other issues aside, on the issue of of Ukraine and aid to Ukraine, do you see that changing anyway if the Republicans are in charge? I hate to say it, John. No, I don't. Uh, As we were saying earlier, since the leadership Mm -hmm. still strongly pro-war and pro-support of Ukraine, um, I, I, th- I think the only thing we'll see is, is, is the Republican Congress, if that's what we end up having, demanding even more money for Ukraine. They're trying to fault the Biden administration for not being militant enough. Yeah, there will be dissenters in the more, from the more populist wing, but I think we may actually see a situation where the leadership uh, has the majority of the Republicans and almost all the Democrats supporting militant action. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Jim Jatras. He's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Michelle, before we get to our next uh, our next guest, um, I, I wanted to raise a couple of little minor points uh, in politics. Um, there was one I, I took some guff over. Okay. I, 
I, you know, I tend to be very friendly on Facebook and I intend to be not at all friendly on Twitter. And I don't know why that is. It's just something that I've started doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I posted an article over the weekend from Business Insider about Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee for mm-hmm. the U.S. Senate. He was asked by a, uh, a CNN reporter, well, what would you do about uh, school shootings? Right. And this is what he said. What I like to do is see it and everything and stuff. Oh, yeah. I I saw this quote. Yeah. 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 He's been hit in the head too many times. Right. CTE's real. Yeah. No, he doesn't seem to um, doesn't seem to to have a have a lot of specific policy positions that he can bring to bear on relevant questions. And it's highly unusual for the incumbent senator who's actually leading in the polls to call for three debates and to be utterly ignored his uh herschel walker's handlers will not allow him to debate because he can't string five words together to form a sentence it's very sad i remembered that i want to talk about the um uproar at the champions league final over the weekend between liverpool and real madrid oh yeah yeah it was kind of ugly i was well (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts, especially, uh, you know, once more attempting to blame fans for what seems to be very clearly a management problem. Yes. Right. Especially Liverpool fans. But I think we'll have to get to that a little bit later because we do have our next guest here on the line. We're going to talk about the Colombian election that we discussed on Friday that's taken a, a very interesting turn. It's going to a runoff. But the candidates who are going to be in that runoff are not necessarily who we would have expected. And so we are going to get a breakdown on them uh, once again from Dennis Rogatiuk. He's a writer, a journalist, political analyst and researcher based in Latin America. Dennis, thanks for being here again. Well, it's great to be on the uh, Political Misfits show again. Thank you. So uh, we have a runoff coming uh, and it is this time around in the global press, it's Rodolfo Hernandez who is getting more attention, right? We we talked about Petro, who is the leftist candidate who, uh, you know, there was some thought might win it outright. He ended up getting, I think, just over 40 percent of the vote, which sends it to a runoff. And Hernandez is being described as Colombia's Trump, right? He's apparently built a, a sort of a, a campaign that had a sudden late surge around uh, taking on corruption, you know, draining the swamp. He's a wealthy businessman. He's perceived as an outsider. He seems to be using social media really effectively. Uh, and it also looks like Colombia's right wing establishment is going to line up behind him, despite how distasteful they might have found him before the first round of the election. Uh, and so I want to ask, you know, th- this is the presentation of the Western press. And I wonder if you agree and if it's useful to think of Hernandez as a Trumpian figure. I think uh, um, before before we get into Rodolfo Hernandez, I think it's important to kind of analyze what, what actually ha- what actually happened on the on the on the day of the election. I believe that uh, the uh, I'd, I'd say I'd say the, le- the say the leading candidate of the right wing, that is the Federico Figo Figo Gutierrez, yeah. really really began to sort of. Uh, 
slump in the polls because he was identified more and more as the candidate of Alvaro Uribe. Mm-hmm. So he received he received the endorsements from Uribe's party, from the Uribe's former uh, candidates, all of the um, you know the political actors that uh, have aligned themselves with the with the current government, are effectively backing him. So he came into the uh, Sunday election with a lot of baggage uh, from the from the last twenty years of the neoliberal governments. Uh, of Colombia, so his his campaign very much fizzled out because people associate him heavily, uh, you know, with this with this era mm-hmm. of the right wing uh, uh, governments. Now, Rodolfo uh, Rodolfo Hernandez is uh, is an interesting figure in the sense in the sense that he, in some ways he is and he's not the Donald Trump of of Colombia. First. Uh, uh, the reasons the reasons why he is uh, yes he's a, you know he's a well he's a wealthy uh, construction magnet magnet he's um, uh, as I say yeah he's his views his views are also uh, say, very much aligned with the conservative establishment conservative political establishment of Colombia although at, at the same time he is at what you said what what he, he proclaims to be and sort of an anti uh, corruption uh, crusader. He has previously, uh, you know, criticized the, the government of of Ivan Duque, sort of the previous uh, administrations, um, and which is kind of ironic as well, because in uh, because as the mayor of uh, Bucaramanga, one of the one of the uh, one of the major cities uh, of Colombia, one of the mayor, uh, as the mayor of Bucaramanga, he actually once said that uh, he was thankful to Alvaro Uribe for helping him for helping to get him elected. Um, so I believe that in this sense, in this sense, he is similar to Donald Trump to Colombia, but there are, uh, but there are, but there are other factors which do differentiate him from Donald Trump. Number one is, um, oh, actually, sorry, sorry. One more thing that certainly has in common with, with Trump is, well, let's say his, yes, his use of, uh, vulgar language mm. and, uh, uh, vulgar la- language. So, you know, sexist, homophobic, mm-hmm. uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, discourse, which he utilizes a lot during, um, uh, say, during his campaigns. The reasons why he's not a Trump bill is because uh, he's. I, I, would say, I would say he doesn't have anywhere near the kind of the, the level of control, uh, and let's say level of power. Actually, the, real, the level of economic power that uh, that Trump had mm-hmm. in the U.S. So. In, in in a scale of things, Hernandez is mostly a minor player in the business sphere of, mm. uh, of Colombia. He's not a billionaire, um, as, a, as his construction firm is pretty as I say, uh, pretty small in scale. Uh, secondly, in terms of in terms of politics, um, previously he he had he did make uh, sort of several statements about uh, the possibility of reestablishing uh, political ties or sorry reestablishing diplomatic ties with Venezuela. Mm. He has talked about. Uh, you know, getting rid of the uh, of conscription in Colombia, of reducing the spending uh, spending on the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this was uh, say this was this was previously, and this the, and these are kind of these were you know the the political statements at the start of uh, at the start of his campaign. Um, but more, but uh, I say all in all, all in all, uh, his figure uh, his figure kind of aligns perfectly with what the Colombian right needs right now, yeah. and what it needs what it needs right now. Is a conservative uh, is a conservative figure uh, that that does not have the baggage of the last twenty years of the of the Uribe administrations, yeah. but who would still serve them uh, serve, serve as the arbitrator, kind of kind of as the as the perfect platform 
for them to continue on with a neoliberal project in Colombia. Let me ask you, does that make this runoff uh, potentially closer than it might have been otherwise, right? Because I think I think I remember Hernandez gets something like 28% in the first round. Um, Gustavo Petro got 40%, you know, which would seem to be a pretty, pretty comfortable margin there. But if you have, you know, the right establishment sort of holding its nose and lining up behind Hernandez, that might uh, make it a closer contest. So I want to ask, mm-hmm. you know, does that, does that actually make it a harder um, sell for Gustavo Petro? But then also, you know, <laughs> As someone who's observing from the outside, it it is interesting if this is indeed a sort of genuine leftist versus a, a genuine right, you know, quote unquote populist, right? Because I'm not really sure how accurate that term is to apply to a right wing figure who's you know going to look out for business interests over that of the people. But at any rate, you know, it's it's a contest in the United States. We we have been um, continuously denied, right? Because the center of our left party always manages to crush its progressive wing. And so I wonder, you know, what is what does this do to the actual contest here? Does it make it harder for Petro? And is it, you know, is this a useful example? Will the outcome be a useful example for for anyone outside of Colombia? I think it definitely does make it harder for Petro to compete against Hernandez as opposed to competing against Gutierrez. And number one reason, as I mentioned, is you know is, is the uh, you know the shadow of Alvaro Uribe, mm-hmm. which was which uh, you know uh, which he cast very which which was cast over uh, Federico Gutierrez's campaign, but not not in the case of uh, of Fernandez's one. Mm-hmm. And now, the, in terms of uh, the actual numbers, like the, one of the one of the first poll, one of the uh, let's see the, the first polls released in the last uh, couple of days actually actually put Hernandez in the winning position. Uh, over uh, over Gustavo Petro, so the uh, poll released on, uh, I'd say like uh, the day uh, the day after the election, put uh, Rodolfo Fernandez at forty eight point two percent, and Gustavo Petro at thirty nine point eight percent. And I believe I believe this is the effect of, uh, but this is more the I'll say the, like a like a knee jerk effect of um, know, assuming that. Uh, the majority of uh, the people who voted for the, for the rest of the candidates will align with the candidacy of uh, Rodolfo Hernandez. So, uh, but uh, it is it is an easier battle for uh, for for Hernandez than it is for Gutierrez to beat Petro. But the, this would uh, this would also mean this would mean that uh, Hernandez would uh, basically have to balance out his campaign in a way that uh, number one attracts the the vote, the, vote, uh, you know, the right wing voters, mm-hmm. voters like the the Uribista base. Uh, but secondly, uh, but but he but he has to do that in a way that doesn't make him look like the the candidate of of Uribe. Does make him look like a traditional conservative yeah. uh, candidate. And at the same time, uh, he needs to he's he still needs he will still need to be able to present some kind of a you know a program that does. Uh, you know, provide a change, not a change in discourse, a change in outlook, a change in, you know, the uh, kind of the political and economic policies uh, as compared to the to Duque's administration, to the current administration. Because what, what, what we have to remember is that the the mindset, the political mindset of the Colombian uh, electorate changed drastically after last year's uh, mass protests against the uh, the sort of the new round of neoliberal policies, you know, a new regressive tax. Uh, that was eventually eventually scrapped. So the mass protests and let's say the mass repression against them um, 
kind of had a similar effect on the Colombian electorate to what to what the protests in Chile had, you know, the, the effect that they had on, they had, uh, on theirs. So the um, the rejection of the of the current uh, socio economic system of Colombia is, as I say, what the, is what the majority of uh, is how the majority of Colombians feel. This is the political. This is the kind of the new emerging political hegemony. So anti anti Uribismo and and anti anti new liberalism is very much has been kind of built into has been uh, basically become the main uh, theme. Let me the ask you of Colombia. if that attitude is being kind of smeared as somehow anti-democracy, because this is the line that I see from Gutierrez, you know, who, who after he lost through his support behind Hernandez saying he wanted to safeguard democracy. So is this going to be the line that somehow Gustavo Petro represents a, a threat to democracy in Colombia and you have to vote for, for Hernandez because he's somehow going to safeguard it? Well, uh, this is exactly what we what we talked about on our, on our previous during the previous episode. Mm-hmm. That uh, for many years now, Gustavo Petro has been uh, has been in the uh, uh, in the in the sight of the Colombian uh, right wing and Colombian media and and, and portrayed as uh, say as the main enemy, I say in Colombia, you know, as one of the main instigators of the mass protests of last year, of someone who is you know allegedly has you know sympathized or has, has connections with the with with various uh, uh, guerrilla movements or with the, with the Venezuelan government or with the or with the Cuban government so yes the uh, the candidacy of petro is definitely seen as a uh, definitely seen as uh, as a as a threat to what they perceive to be democracy in this case democracy being uh, you know the narco paramilitary state which which has been built uh, by Uribe and his successes over the last uh, 20 years, and of course with the with, with, the, with the help and support of the United States. Uh, now, whether this tactic would actually work is is, is questionable, uh, considering considering I say how uh, I'd say how out of touch with reality the Colombian media has really become. Hmm. And as I said before, the mass protests of last year really demonstrated to to the wider uh, public. Dennis, uh, may I ask you a question? We're, when we look at this election, we're so focused on what it means domestically for uh, Colombia because it would be such a major change in in the kind of governance that the country has. But my question is, what would it do to Colombia's uh, foreign policy? Over the, the last uh, 10 or 20 years, Colombia has more closely aligned itself with the United States than it, it ever had in, in uh, previous times. Um, and it's got a very difficult uh, relationship with Venezuela. How would you see that changing in the event of a of a change in government? I would say that this would have a tremendous symbolic change across Latin America and I'd say also also uh, say across across the world. I, w- I would even say, as you know, the first time the first time that the leftist comes uh, into into Colombia would really signify would really signify that you know this is not impossible. You know, it's, it's 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 not it's not impossible if uh, you know for a country that's you know for a country a country that I would argue is the closest to the United States government, you know after Israel of course. Um, so a uh, so a so a genuine uh, you know uh, I would say a le- uh, a leftist figure that commands uh, the support of a very broad sway of you know different progressive left wing and liberal uh, forces coming uh, coming to power would signify a. 
I, I, would, I would say it would actually help in, in many ways it would help to uh, it would greatly assist in uh, the current in maintaining uh, the current momentum throughout Latin America and that is the momentum of you know of the left wing uh, political parties of uh, various ideologies returning back to power across across right. the continent across the continent it would greatly uh, assist uh, I believe the Silva's campaign in uh, in Brazil for the presidential election uh, this year. Uh, now, but let's say in terms of the actual policy, like you know, what actual actual change in foreign international uh, policy of Colombia, this will be extremely difficult for Gustavo Petro to try to, you know, stir it away uh, immediately in 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 the short term, because as you said, Colombia is uh, as is uh, one of the most uh, one of the government's most countries most aligned with, with the, the U.S. government. Yeah. Yep. But but I, but I, but I believe what I but I believe that Gustavo Petro would certainly uh, begin to let's say pivot Colombia towards institutions like CELAC, the Community of Latin American States, begin to pivot it more towards cooperation with you know with other progressive governments, you know, with in Argentina, in Chile, in in Brazil, with with Lula, uh, with Mexico, of course. Uh, I believe I believe it would begin kind of you know thawing uh, the, the relationships uh, the relationship with uh, Venezuela. I do genuinely hope that uh, Gustavo Petro as president would, will recognize Nicolas Maduro as the, as the legitimate president of Venezuela, which uh, the current government Colombian government does not. Um, uh, but overall, I, I see it as a very tough battle for Gustavo Petro to dislodge uh, the current uh, foreign policy of Colombia. I mean, given how important uh, our relationship with is with Colombia, the U.S. relationship, I'm, I wonder how much interest you're seeing by American groups in in the outcome of this runoff, right? Because it does seem sort of unusual for the United States to just sort of sit sit back and sit on its hands while something so significant takes place. So I'm I'm wondering how much I don't know how, how much support you are seeing line up behind Hernandez and uh, how much support from outside of the country uh, is perhaps going to start trickling in. That's a good question, actually. I uh... I personally, I personally think that well, you know, well, Hernandez is a prefer is a preferred the preferred choice of the United States uh, government, obviously. Obviously, um, but in terms of like you know the, the international actors who are aligning aligning with Petro, um, I believe that because of the broad nature of his coalition, but I think in the in the coming days we're going to see you know endorsements for him coming from from all across uh, you know Latin America you know the, uh, the the present and the past and present leaders of the uh, of the of the pink tide like, i mean endorsement uh, endorsing him i have no uh, um doubt say yeah uh, say rafa yeah people individuals like rafael correa evo morales alberto Fernandez, alberto and cristina fernandez yeah Lula, of course i believe even even maduro might might endorse him although uh, uh, although it's uh, but but then again, perhaps not. Of course, you know the Europe, the the various leaders, the various kind of you know social democratic leaders across uh, Europe, as well. I expect them to throw their support uh, behind Petro, and pro- most and most likely even like you know some members of the uh, some of the progressive circles uh, in in United States mm-hmm. as well. So I I, I assume I assume Bernie Sanders will, will be on board as well. Mm-hmm. 
Not that, not that that necessarily <laughs> does very much. I have to say. I mean, he did. I mean, he did. I mean, he did support Gustavo Petro in last year's elections. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. sorry, sorry, in the in the previous elections. Yeah. So uh, it would just. So where do you I, think? I, that... I, I, I'd be surprised if he uh, if he didn't uh, throw his, throw his weight behind him this time too. And do you want to make a? What would your prediction now be with the election about three weeks away, the runoff election? Who do, who do you think takes it? This will definitely be close. Like there's absolutely no doubt, no doubt that the wow. result, the, 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 the result will be close and it will be hotly, it will be contested by either side, I believe, uh, when it comes. So I would say uh, I would put, I would put it as a coin toss at the moment. Man, like, wow. it, like we are playing. You don't hear that very often. Very, no, yes, yeah, but I mean, it does make sense, off. and especially if the right is just deciding they're going to line up behind um, Hernandez, that yeah. it's a big, yeah. it's a big lift. Petra, uh, Gustavo Petra. Uh, that was Dennis Rogatuk. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. You're a writer, a journalist, a political analyst. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners anywhere they can go to find some of your recent work? I would say go to uh, El Ciudadano for the Spanish language uh, versions. I've also, uh, well, you can also check out my uh, uh, Twitter feed at, at Dennis uh, Rogatuk and of course other, publication, other publications in uh, journals, journals and magazines like uh, like Jacobin, like Grey Zone, like Lo, uh, Le and other, uh, see, other mm. websites. And thank you so much for your analysis. Really appreciate it. Likewise. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk a little bit about some of the interesting reporting on corruption uh, or the appearance of corruption in the Biden administration that we are starting to see. And also talk about what lengths the Supreme Court is prepared to go to to find out who leaked that draft opinion. Indeed. Yeah, this is an interesting hunt that we're going to get into in just a second here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou getting into some domestic news today. We're going to be talking about leaks, talking about corruption and, and why it is that we find it so, I think, difficult to... Yeah. Difficult to like put our finger down and go, no, 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 that's it. That is corruption in the United States, right? right. When we don't have something like uh, an envelope of money changing hands in a uh, dark alley or something. That's right. We are going to be talking about the Biden family, and that's because the Washington Post, among others, are talking about them, right? Yes. And talking in, about uh, the Biden family's treatment in the press and how that has changed a little bit. Joining us for this conversation is Kevin Gastala. He's a journalist, a writer for Shatterproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Hey, it's good to talk to both of you. Welcome back, Kev. I want to start with what is happening in this investigation into the leak of a draft opinion from the Supreme Court earlier this month. I still can't believe it was only like crazy three weeks ago. And, you know, um, excuse me one second. Sure. I, I just now stepped out just for a second and I happen to look up at the TV uh, you know, CNN was on one of the TVs and now the Supreme Court's internal security apparatus, whatever it is, is getting the phone records of all of the clerks to see if they can find 
someone who called a number associated with a Politico reporter. Ooh. Well, yeah, so this, serious. this is the report that was uh, from CNN this morning, that the court is going to require its law clerks to provide cell phone records and also sign affidavits and that clerks themselves, again, these are all according to CNN's anonymous sources, uh, but the clerks themselves are looking into whether they should hire lawyers. Um, and so one, you know, it is it is still remarkable to me that the leak itself, the fact of a leak from the Supreme Court has generated as much alarm and controversy as the content of the draft opinion in, in some circles, uh, because the, the court and its secrecy and its apoliticism is so venerated uh, by some people who believe in that. Uh, and so now, even though the, we've had no public reports on the hunt for the leaker, we don't know if we ever will uh, get a public report on how this, uh, you know, this hunt has gone down. Um, and so I want to ask just what, what do you make of the uproar over the leak and this this hunt for that person? Because it does seem like these law clerks who are like the cream of the crop of law schools, oh, but are totally still, but they're still like young, yes. earlier in their career, yes. Uh, yes. you know, much more vulnerable people are going to be under a lot more scrutiny than the justices themselves. And there seems like there's That's something right. probably wrong with that. Yeah. So to me, I have to connect this to the long history of work I've done covering leak investigations and prosecutions of people, mm -hmm. not typically working for the judiciary. But I know that when we look back at 2012, there was a mini panic Mm -hmm. over leaks to the New York Times and some other newspapers around drones and uh, also um, related to um, uh, the uh, allegedly they had a sting operation that was unfolding in Yemen the, where they had someone who was helping them to capture some terrorists that were with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And anyways, some newspapers caught wind of what was going on and then you had uh, prominent figures in the U.S. Senate like Dianne Feinstein and others proposing anti-leaks proposals immediately. Uh, and so without any particularized suspicion, we don't really know who the leaker is. It even says in this article that they believe asking people for their phone records suggests that after all this time, they still don't really know who mm -hmm. is responsible for leaking the draft. And so what do we do? Well, we start to uh, tack on all these different authoritarian measures that can be used to create a dragnet and figure out who is the one that's responsible. We can do polygraph exams. Uh, you can ask for phone records. Uh, you can monitor keystrokes on all the computers and track people's internet habits while they're at work. Uh, some of those systems already do that automatically and, and may have done so before, but probably not at the Supreme Court. Now you, you you see the possibility that the Supreme Court is gonna, or the judicial branch is gonna adopt the kinds of measures that the Pentagon has had post WikiLeaks and post Edward Snowden, and that they're gonna take it as far as they as they can, and uh, maybe even monitor people's online habits when they're at home, um, not even working at their own workplace computer, but also from their own home offices, uh, because some of that has happened, I believe, within military and security agencies as well. And so, you know, if we're thinking about what the leakers should be concerned about right now, well, we could probably go down two different paths. I know that there are a couple different views about who would have the motivation to leak this draft. You know, one says that there's a person out there working in this branch who wanted 
this leak so that they could put the Supreme Court in a position where they would overturn Roe v. Wade. And so they, there's a belief that it could be somebody who's conservative and shares the politics of someone like Clarence Thomas or Alito. And uh, I, I still think, though, that that person could be in trouble given how much publicity this has received. It's hard to believe that that person doesn't face repercussions, even if they're later deemed some kind of a folk hero among Fox News and others. Um, it, it is possible that there would be less of an impact or a hammer being brought down on that person if the Biden White House was afraid of what it would mean for the midterms and going into his reelection. But that being said, I still think that person faces a, a prospect of, of significant retaliation. Now, if they do not share the politics of the majority of the Supreme Court, and this isn't some kind of a scheme to overturn Roe v. Wade, then it's somebody who's uh, skews more like the liberal establishment and is concerned that something that's been a fixture for the last half century could be overturned and upend uh, certain legal norms as we know it. And so with that, they should be concerned about sticking their neck out. Um, they probably will be revered as a whistleblower, but I also think it's something that they should, you know, they, they obviously should have a lawyer right now, someone representing them, and they should be prepared for the media to not really care whether it was right for them to come forward. That's mm -hmm. what we saw with Reality Winner. It didn't matter that, she, that, that the entire media believed that Russia was involved in interfering in the 2016 election. They fixated on the fact that she had not followed certain rules, and then they totally abandoned her when, uh, in fact, it actually fit with their news narratives. And mm -hmm. I feel like that will happen to this person if they're someone who has the same ideology as most people in the media, that they're just going to say, well— there's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way and you did it the wrong way. I also, uh, Kevin, I don't want to be naive here, right? I, I mean, sometimes, sure, it, it, some different organizations at some different times, I guess, should should have some secrecy. But really, like, a lot of this depends on the collective belief that that so many of these decisions, uh, whether they be, you know, at the Supreme Court or in Congress or in the Pentagon or whatever, that these decisions that are supposedly being undertaken of a, you know, in a government by the people for the people of the people should be conducted for some reason in absolute privacy and darkness. And that, you know, it is far, far worse than some of the outcomes themselves, as you've been detailing, is, you know, violating some process rule to make some of that known to the public. And it just to me is a it's a it's a strange assumption. You know, it's the assumption that covers for insider, you know, rampant insider trading among Congress. It's an assumption that allows for, you know, a lot of obvious dealing that goes against the the uh, you know that, that cuts against the well being of the American people to continue, and we just yet continue to have this idea that you know oh no all of these like patently obviously corrupt people and institutions must be allowed to operate without you know w without sunlight touching their delicate faces, and I it just is so strange to me that we you know. In, a, in an age when, you know, the, looking at how many millionaires there are in Congress, right, just looking at the state of the federal minimum wage, looking at the state of the country, we still go, oh, no, I guess it's appropriate that, like, no one should know anything that gets discussed at the Supreme Court or at the Pentagon or wherever. Mm -hmm. well, to me, the leak has exposed the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court. And we know that they're aware of their illegitimacy. 
I don't have to sit here and say this and have somebody accuse me of being some kind of you know, extreme leftist. Mm-hmm. Clarence Thomas goes out and gives speeches and the only thing he talks about, and the same thing that only Stephen Breyer, who just retired, talks about, is how he's worried that the public is going to see the Supreme Court as a partisan court and they're not going to trust the decisions. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is. Yeah. It's illegitimate because we know that Donald Trump put three new justices on it and specifically appointed them for their extreme ideological positions when it comes to interpreting law and the Constitution. And that's why they were there. They're there to overturn Roe v. Wade. They're there to gut other things that have been agenda items for the right wing for century. Well, sorry, for for at least a half century. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are things that, that are just... Like they were pie in the sky dreams and then they were made reality because Democrats are completely feckless at putting together any kind of opposition. Mm-hmm. And so you see now that they're putting up barriers or these obstacles around the Supreme Court that have been there for the last three weeks, making it into a fortress and now putting in these measures to identify leakers is just another hallmark of, a, of an institution that is illegitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the only way to see it. And yet, mm-hmm. if you if you keep the focus really narrowly on violations of our, uh, you know, to, the the process bestowed upon us celestially through the Constitution, which are all supposed to worship, uh, you can ignore the the larger corruption that's happening right under your noses and the sort of, uh, you know, the the rotten nature of so many of these institutions at this point. Speaking of feckless Democrats, uh, Kevin, I, I wanted to ask about the treatment the Biden administration is getting in the press lately. And I want to get into the meat of some of these stories in a minute. But I think it's notable that just today in the post alone, you have a story offering a a timeline of inflation in the United States with the headline, policymakers misjudged the threat until it was too late. It's very critical of the Biden administration's response. You have a front page story about Joe Biden's brother, James, and his often questionable business practices, including a bunch of them involving Hunter Biden. You have a Politico story about an exodus of black staffers who are uh, disillusioned with the administration. And you also have uh, the former director of the Office of Government Ethics, Walter Schaub, over the weekend. And Schaub is a very big anti-Trump guy, right? Uh, But he starts tweeting over the weekend, look, I know people love this guy and he's better than the other guy, but this will go down in history as one of the weakest administrations in modern times, full of beltway insiders and influence peddlers who love the status quo and don't comprehend this moment in history and saying Biden administration finds government ethics annoying. Yeah. I I think, I think this is, this is quite a lot of uh, critical stories of an administration that, you know, was really assisted by the press on the campaign trail. And I I wonder if this is coincidence or if this is a shift uh, toward Biden by some of the mainstream media. I absolutely agree with Walter Schaub. And I think that he is absolutely right to point out that uh, people are not willing to hold this administration accountable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, always we seem to live under the tyranny of lowered expectations. If I can borrow something that I've heard repeatedly from Ralph Nader Mm -hmm. throughout his long history of being a stalwart consumer advocate, that constantly people look at the Republicans and they say they're so dangerous and we can't have them in power. And then the Democrats come along 
and they live in this space comfortably. Uh, they bask in it. They're so pleased with themselves <laughs> yeah. that they do not have to do anything in order to still be needed mm-hmm. by a population. And, you know, it is us who would dare to go vote outside the two-party system that are the ones that should be dragged. And uh, and we're accused of not recognizing that there are underprivileged and vulnerable populations mm-hmm. that need Democrats because Republicans are going to attack them. But meanwhile, it's not like those Democrats ever do anything to repay those who continue to show up for them Mm -hmm. every two to four years in order to make sure that they can win their elections, Mm -hmm. especially talking about the black women who made it possible for Joe Biden and Democrats to win Georgia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 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 so you sit here and you you know that they, they they subject whether they should abide by ethics to a focus group. I mean, that was something that was in the (laughs) Podesta emails. You can find conversations about whether they should follow ethics Mm -hmm. and 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 whether they should like track or 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 not give money to super PACs or take money from super PACs and things like that. And they're basically trying to figure out, will it be a liability in our race against the Republican if we follow this or that? How much can we? get away with. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see in the the emails that were published by WikiLeaks from 2016. And it hasn't changed. You know, these figures Mm -hmm. that are in the Biden administration are from the consultant class. They're people like uh, Wendy Sherman, who was at the Albright Stonebridge group where Mm -hmm. Madeleine Albright used to be, you know, the godmother, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then there's people like Jake Sullivan and others who are in think tanks and are part of projects like the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which claims to be able to find a disinformation operation under everyone's bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, all these other figures who have these interests. I mean, Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon came from Raytheon yep. and he's prosecuting a war against Russia, a proxy war in Ukraine against mm-hmm. Russia. Uh, that is directly beneficial to him and yeah. and all those people who are connected to him. This is a, so this is a really roundabout way of encapsulating all the things that need to be said about how corrupt these people are who are in power and how they really have no reason to take any action. I think like inaction is almost demanded of them because of the people who mm-hmm. are funding them in the sense that they're afraid, like if they confront people, I think they're afraid that they're going to lose donors. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, I mean, this is exactly what Schaub said. He goes on. He says, you know, you, Biden's been rotating influence peddlers from West Exec, gigantic law firms, SKDK, through the administration on a conveyor belt. Uh, a milk lobbyist is running the agriculture department. And, I, you know, I know you spent quite a lot of time. He detailed some of these connections already here. But uh, before uh, the administration came in, you spent quite a lot of time reporting on the connections of various you know, nominees for various positions and why they should disqualify qualify them in many cases from taking a role in government. And and I want to ask, you know, what we're talking about is corruption, right? Or at the very, very least, uh, creating the, the conditions for cor- corruption to flourish. And yet we just really don't 
talk about corruption in the American political system. And I, and I want to ask, you know, how how do we I guess, how do you think you get people to care or to see it when it's so much the status quo that, of course, you know, uh, of course, a, a Raytheon executive is going to end up in a high level position at, at the Pentagon. Right. Of course, someone who's uh, worked for uh, farm lobbies or huge trade industry lobbies is going to end up running running the agriculture department, right? Because I think we have this idea that corruption is something that, like, corruption is one act, right? Corruption is taking a bribe. Right? Corruption is a very clear, um, you know, pay to play. And instead, what you have is just this sort of rotating cast of characters at the top and not necessarily a whole lot of smoking guns. How do you, I guess... Uh, maintain the scrutiny where it needs to be? And also, do you think that the Biden administration is getting um, is getting the scrutiny that it should, right? And maybe more than past administrations? Are people waking up a little bit? Well, I will say that I don't think that Joe Biden's administration gets the kind of pass that Barack Obama's White House did mm -hmm. uh, because he just doesn't have that charisma. And I don't I don't think that it's as much of a well-oiled machine as what Obama was able to put together. I mean, we need to remember that the campaign for President Barack Obama in 2008 actually won an award from Advertising Age because of how polished it was and what wow. they were able to accomplish. And so um, I think the thing that we should be focused on is how we all need more follow the money journalism. Yeah. And that's what gets people to recognize these things. And I, I've put together threads on Twitter that dig through campaign uh, donations that, that, that dig through these uh, campaign finance records from the FEC and show that uh, these people who are millionaires just gave $200,000 to this campaign, or they gave $200,000 to this. Uh, and, and you can follow the money. You can follow it to whether it's uh, a super PAC or it, it might be something that's even more nefarious, like the, um, uh, it's called DMFI, the, um, the, the group that has been bankrolling these ads that are targeted against progressives who run against incumbent Democrats. Um, the, the Democratic Majority for Israel group and and how um, basically they're using Israeli issues and, and going after people um, and, 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 and targeting for things like, uh, oh, like what they, what they did for Bernie was, oh, we think you're like this close to another heart attack. So right. how can we trust you to be the president of the United States? And they're, they're not even going on the issues. They're just running these ads that prey upon voter insecurities. Um, and, and so anyways, we need this follow the money journalism that tracks us and people do care. I guess what I'm in, in so many words, I'm trying to say that I think people do care. I had my thread yeah. go viral. Um, and then just to end on this, the, you know, the daily poster with David Sirota and mm -hmm. others, I have friends there are highly successful at what they're doing. Um, actually it's called the lever now yeah. and they're highly successful at what they do. And they're basically just tracking corporate lobbyists and they're tracking the influence of money in politics and they just hit it as hard as they can every single day. And it doesn't have to do with what tweets went viral. It doesn't have to do with what so-and-so said on Facebook or what so-and-so said 
um, when they were ambushed by CNN yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's just about like the nitty gritty of what is driving people. And we need to impress upon others, um, that, that we don't buy what elites say to us. Cause, yeah. cause there are a lot of elites who say to us that they get to get all this money and it doesn't have any bearing on what they do. Mm -hmm. And that's just false. And yeah. I don't think the public believes that they can get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars and not make decisions mm -hmm. based upon those funds. No, I think that's a good point to make. I think people do care and people are uh, yes. horrified. It just, you know, uh, it, it's very difficult to translate that into electoral change. And part of that, I think, is because of this idea of electability. Right. And so, oh, well, even if you support this candidate who appears to be, you know, relatively uncorrupt or is, is promising good things, you can't you actually shouldn't vote for them because a bunch of mythical other people are not going to like him or her. And so, you know, you've got to vote with, you know, you always got to go with the lesser evil because they're the only ones who can win. And I think that's a sort of different kind of horse race lie that people have really bought into uh, that we would be better served by forgetting. I want to I want to ask you quickly, Kevin, about this um, James Biden story. The Post is obviously trying to get ahead of uh, what Republicans are surely going to be planning if they take back either House of Congress, you know, investigation after investigation into ethical lapses by the Bidens. And I say, obviously, like the Post basically says this is this mm -hmm. is what we're doing. Um, but I do think it is notable that the story relies in part on emails from Hunter Biden's laptop that the Post says it's authenticated. So turns out long after that was first reported, that information is, in fact, useful and newsworthy. Um, but again, you know, you have you have a brother of the president whose career seems to be full of lawsuits uh, a whole bunch of different kinds of lawsuits, but quite a few of them alleging that he told various business partners he could get them clients and investments by trading on his family name. And then either that doesn't pan out or James Biden keeps them all for himself, which actually in a roundabout way makes Joe Biden kind of look good. Um, but, you know, you 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 have this uh, 2017 deal with the Chinese energy conglomerate in which uh James Biden and Hunter got nearly five million dollars in just over a year, including a monthly stipend of one hundred thousand dollars for Hunter Biden, even though none of the projects they discussed ever panned out, apparently. And, you know, it's it's like the it's problematic in the same way these sort of revolving door consultancies are right. Like if someone is giving you a huge amount of money, I guess you have to assume, that you know, at some point they're going to want something from it. And so I wonder, you know, what you make of the post actually trying to get ahead of this James Biden stuff that the Republicans have to be planning and, and how much scrutiny that deserves. Well, I suppose that the people at the post are thinking that it's 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 better if they can give it a certain kind of treatment now before it is just going throughout this conservative media echo chamber that's highly effective. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think, I don't think that that's going to work just because their, their machine is just, it's so good at what it does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just have to look at what they were able to accomplish with critical race theory to mm -hmm. know that it really doesn't, really doesn't matter. You know, whatever they're going to, get people to believe about Joe Biden's family. I think they're going to be able to convince people and it's going to have a kernel of truth. Yeah. These things always have at least 10 to 20% uh, tr of truth behind it. Otherwise it doesn't work. You have yeah. to believe some part of it. Otherwise it doesn't go very far. I mean, even some of the most craziest things, I mean, 
I'm going to be careful because especially I know where we're recording this on. But I mean, (laughs) even the like narrative for what people believe with QAnon all goes back to the idea that there is a cabal that is secretive and controlling everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's completely wrong. It's 125 percent wrong when you when you when you see what details they fill out. Mm -hmm. And everyone who believes it is saying things that are just uh, fantasy and nightmare. But what they believe is that they've lost control of their lives and there are people who are secretly making decisions and they have no involvement at all in being able to make those decisions. And so they're not. And that's not wrong. You know, yeah, yeah this is the problem yeah. with all of it. That's that's not wrong. You know, it, there aren't lizard people. But yeah. So when you look at what I think has the most capability of gaining traction and should gain traction, it's this fact that we spent the last four to five years going on and on about the benefits that Donald Trump Jr. would get and yeah. anybody connected to Donald Trump, any of his family would get. And the same should be given to people who are in Biden's family. Mm-hmm. I mean, we shouldn't believe that it's any different, yeah. that that the Trump political network couldn't happen with you know Joe's political network, that he couldn't have the same sort of setup where people trade off their name and make money and use it to boost their business ventures. Yeah. And just to be clear here about, you know, a source that people could go to if they want more information and, and and a group that is really like down the line good at doing investigative journalism, ProPublica did a major piece on James Biden in February 2020 before Joe Biden was elected called mm-hmm. the benefits of being Joe Biden's brother mm. and The subheading was that at nearly every critical junction in Joe's life, Jim Biden had been at his brother's side and he had he had repeatedly tapped into Joe's political network for help with his finances and used Joe's fame to promote his business ventures, used Joe's prominence to help refinance loans that most people would have extreme difficulty getting out from under. There were like liens uh, to, to the tunes of many millions of dollars that were placed against his properties that he was able to get out from under mm-hmm. um, by using Joe's influence. And so that's something that's worth asking questions. You know, why does why does Joe Biden's family get to have this sort of exceptionalism when most families who are going through really tough times as we see record infla- inflation, mm-hmm. high, high energy prices, why do they get to have these sort of favors done? Mm-hmm. And, and just to close, why? Why should this family or anybody in Congress be able to have the ability to engage in insider stock trading? Yeah. I mean, yeah. nobody we, we see more and more retail investors wanting to engage in trading, whether it's it's, it's with cryptocurrency or having a, a, a slice of companies that they know about because they want to make some money on the side because their life is is, is 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 one where they have to struggle to get by. Mm-hmm. They, they're like, OK, I'm going to see what I can do to try to to, to maybe get rich quick here. Why can't we have the same kind of inside information that they get? And why do people act mm-hmm. like they have a right in Congress to have access to inside information? Mm-hmm. I mean, they shouldn't. And and I think people know that. I think people, both conservatives and progressives and, and everyone in between, understand that this is this is where the corruption starts, mm-hmm. that, that, that these people are part of a network inside of government in which they're able to just enrich themselves off knowledge that we do not have access to. And if they have access to it and we don't, 
then that's 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 reason to want to throw everybody out and be extremely angry about the the status quo. Yeah, I mean the issue I think is that obviously neither side is really interested in in ending this. It's just useful to be able to point to it across the aisle, right? But when when it's on your side, uh, you're making it up. This isn't real. Let's all ignore it. Um, before we let you go, just real quick, Kevin, and to end on a, a note that is maybe a little bit heartening, uh, I saw that you noted a rare protest against uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland personally uh, when he was giving, I believe it was a commencement speech at Harvard. Uh, the protesters were there to draw attention to the fact that Garland is leading a Justice Department that still refuses to drop the charges against Julian Assange. And, you know, John and I have been talking on the show about, you know, maybe the the of course terrible possibility likelihood that assange will soon be transferred to us soil to yes. face trial will also mean that we see in the united states a, a groundswell of uh, popular pushback and dissent against this case and against it going forward and I, I wonder if you are maybe seeing a little bit of that in the reception that garland got at harvard so it's had a lot of distance because it's across the ocean and people have acted like, well, that's in the UK and we don't have to deal with it right now. But once he's arraigned in the United States, which is seems like an increased possibility, mm -hmm. then it'll be very real for everyone. And, and I think you're going to suddenly see a whole lot of people with comments and opinions who had been silent and they're going to act like they should be on TV and should get our attention. Mm -hmm. But in any case, to give credit, uh, before we go, before I go, uh, these students at Harvard, you know, some of them who were graduating, they stepped forward. It was, you know, maybe a dozen or so, not a whole lot of students, but it's really something to say that, you know, you take the day that you're graduating from university and you, you use it to confront the person who's giving a commencement speech, specifically Merrick Garland. Um, this one student said, uh, that they were doing it because they thought that rather than just glorifying Merrick Garland, the people of Harvard should be outraged that he's being invited to speak. If Julian Assange is prosecuted and convicted for his work, that would open the door for any investigative journalist to potentially be prosecuted in the future for their standard work. That's it's very good. Yeah. It's very well spoken yep. and said. And, um, and then just to conclude, Garland said during his speech to these students, you're the next generation that must devote yourselves to preserving our democracy and helping others protect theirs. And I can think of no better example than on your commencement day, stepping forward to challenge the attorney general who is allowing this prosecution to continue, which is recognized globally by press freedom and civil society organizations as a threat to freedom of expression. Yeah, absolutely. That was Kevin Gastala of Shatterproof and the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We spoke a lot last week about the horrific school shooting in Texas, which resulted in the deaths of 19 fourth graders and two teachers, as well as the 18-year-old gunman. We also told you that the Uvalde Police Department's account of the shooting turned out to be completely fabricated. 
practically the entire police department stood outside for as long as 45 minutes. Some reports say 70 minutes while the gun while the gunman was inside the school killing children. It was only when a Border Patrol SWAT team showed up that the cops finally entered the school, but it was too late. Now the Justice Department is investigating this cowardice, but to what end? The damage is done. The children are dead. With the cops relying on a Supreme Court ruling from years ago saying that police officers do not have a duty to protect us, why have cops in the first place? Where's the accountability there? We're joined by Paul Wright. He's the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul. Paul, let's begin with the most obvious question. The Justice Department says that the Uvalde Police Department had been trained in what to do in an active shooter situation, and they ended up doing exactly the opposite of what they were supposed to do. Why? Um, it sounds like literally the most obvious answer is just simply cowardness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for uh, I've read a lot of articles that have come out since uh, since the shooting and as more has become known. Uh, since uh, the police is in action, and a lot of folks are, a lot of you know, police experts that are noting that at least since Columbine, the standard police doctrine, the the police training for the last twenty years or so, has been that police responding to mass shooting scenes should be immediately engaging with the shooter. Because I think that you know, with the with research and a review, I won't even call it the science because it's also kind of morbid to to actually say that in this country we actually have a science or a study of mass shootings, but sadly we do, is that um, most of the killing happens within a few minutes. Right. Vast number of victims, the people that are shot and killed and, and wounded, all happen within the first few minutes. And the common sense thing is that basically police arriving on the scene should try to engage engage the shooter as quickly as possible with the goal of either disarming or incapacitating them one way or the other. So, and and it's interesting because, you know, we've seen this in other mass shootings where that's actually what's happened. Um, In uh, the Pulse shooting in in Orlando, for example, a police detective who was there, he was armed with a handgun and he still engaged the shooter, even though, um, you know, how effective it was or wasn't, we don't know, but at least he engaged them. But the, but the cowardness thing, I mean, and that's one of the things that's, that's, that we see um, that I think is what's absolutely infuriating to so many people is I think this failed promise of the American police state is, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're surveilled at every level. We um, have this militarization of our police forces. Our police forces are heavily armed, more heavily armed than even uh, military units in other countries are. And yet they're great at killing unarmed people or children um, or grandmothers or whatever. But when it actually comes time to actually protect the citizenry and do the job they're ostensibly being paid to do, they not just turn tail and run, but, you know, they don't do anything Mm -hmm. around and wait and let the killing continue. And I don't know if you saw one of the things that was especially horrific was um, one of the children in one of the classrooms uh, who was later killed while the police were sitting around waiting called 911. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and one of the other things, too, besides that is also the people that are injured. And I'm not sure that we'll ever know the answer, but you wonder how many people that were injured, how many of these children that were injured in these shootings uh Maybe would have survived if they'd have, if police had responded promptly 
and they'd have been able to get to a hospital. Yeah. Exactly. And that's one of the things to be totally absent from any of the whatever passes for discussion or thought process while the cops are sitting around waiting for an hour was there didn't, they didn't seem any hurry or any um, concern about getting the injured, the wounded to medical treatment. No. In fact, there was there was not even any discussion of that. We mentioned on the show last week that that the uh, Uvalde Police Department received a 40 percent budget increase a year or two ago that went to training, equipment and salaries. And then they they even released photographs of everybody standing around with their new guns and their new equipment and all this stuff. The end result was the second worst school shooting in American history. So where does an utterly discredited police department go from here? I mean, it seems to me like the logical thing is you've got to get rid of everybody. You've got to get rid of everybody and then start all over again. And I totally agree with that, John. I think that one of the things that's amazing to me is the fact that here we are a week later and these guys still have jobs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I can't think of anything where I can't think of any other workplace in America where you're being paid to do something, you're trained to do it, you're equipped to do it, and you totally blow it. And the, like you say, the second worst, the worst of the second worst uh, school shooting in American history happens on your watch. And you, and again, you've still got a job. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the type of thing that I think that one of the things that, that I think that is unparalleled almost in world history is how good the American bureaucracy has gotten at evading responsibility. It's like, you know, Harry Truman was famous for saying the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. And since Harry Truman, it seems like the buck never stops with anyone. It just keeps going round and round. And we see this in in almost every context, whether, you know, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's wars or, you know, whatever, it seems that yeah, people say, yeah, that someone really blew it, but that someone is, they're rarely identified and they're almost never held accountable. Yes. Uh, one of the things I, I want to note, too, is that, you know, unfortunately here in Florida, we a couple of years ago, we had the Parkland shooting, mm-hmm. which was nearby. It's around, it's in the neighboring county in Broward County at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, High School. And there, it was a very similar situation where the school had its own police its own police force, it had its own police officer, and of course the parlance of the American police state, they call them school resource officers. And the resource officer, um, the armed cop who was on campus at the time, when Nicholas Cruz showed up and started shooting um, the students and the teachers, um, the school resource officer, the armed cop who was supposed to protect the children, he ran away. And, And that's one of the things that is kind of amazing. I guess you, know, you can't hire for bravery or hire for um, whatever, but it, but it just seems that it's one of those things that people are taking these jobs without, um, you know, without any expectation or idea that they may actually be called upon to have to risk their lives to do it. Yes. If they want to keep the job. There was an op-ed in the, in the New York Post written by Piers Morgan, who, whom I generally hate. Uh, But he made some very important points in this thing. Uh, First, he quotes tweets by Robert O'Neill, the Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden. One tweet says, and this is during the shooting as it's happening, he says, uh, kids are getting murdered. Get in the room. End of story. The second tweet said, hey, cops, get in the room. The kids are calling you. Get in the effing room. 
And the third tweet said, I would never have left you alone, kids. I'm heartbroken. He makes the point that the police were simply waiting for some collective bravery to finally motivate them uh, to go in. And that took as long as 70 minutes. And then they lied to us about it. And they said in the first press conference that they tried that they tried to do what they could, that they were heroes, that eventually they were able to engage the shooter and they killed him. Now they're likely to ask for more money, for more training and more weapons. So, Paul, what do you think should be done in a case like this? Well, I think one of the first things that needs to be done, I think the people kind of blew it. They need to be held accountable. Yeah. Like I say, uh, the, the police officer at Parkland, he was charged. He was criminally charged. I don't know what the status of those charges was. It's his, I can tell you he's facing trial in August. I just happened to look that up but for a bunch of child neglect charges. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And, you know, and, uh, but again, I, I think this is one of the things, you know, there needs to be some type of accountability in the fact that, um, you know, you, you know, this is your job and you blow it. Um, there needs to be some type of accountability. And I think that, you know, almost, and that's one of the things I think, you know, this show and a lot of others that we've been on, you know, I think we bemoan the lack of like, especially corporate accountability for, you know, um, you know, workers are killed on the job and, and uh, the companies are fined a pittance. Yes. Yeah. But, but I think this is actually one of those things. I think that, you know, whatever, you know, whatever your political views are, whatever your views on whether it's criminal justice or, you know, or anything, no one thinks it's acceptable to murder a bunch of 10 year olds. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that this is one of the things, if these are the people that are being not just entrusted, but they're being paid. Yeah. One of the things I think that we've seen that's just so, so I think heartbreaking about these school shootings that we've seen around the country, whether it was at the Parkland school here in Florida, um, Sandy Hook, what we saw in Uvalde, it's the unarmed teachers that are giving their lives to protect their students and to protect the children. Yeah. And, you know, and it's just like one of those things where, okay, the unarmed school teachers, um, the coaches, the the elementary school teachers, these are the ones that are giving their lives to save the children. In the meantime, heavily armed, well-paid, trained police force are just standing by not doing anything. Can I, I also want to add that, you know, yes, I mean, failing to do your job, obviously, uh, it, there should be consequences for that. I think we also need to uh, have more consequences for lying to people about it. Like, I think that we have just really become used to being lied to by officials in, in law enforcement and government, you know, by, uh, you know, national security advisors to Congress, you know, what have you. I think there should be consequences for trying to obscure what really happened uh, to the public, right? That, that should be, you know, as significant as, as this failure to act, because that's the only way you ever get any kind of truth out of these situations. If it's not just acceptable for entire police departments to cover for one of their officers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And then also the politicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, one of, one, of the, one of the things, too, that, you know, the politicians that are also doing it as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things I find amazing is I guess the mayor of Uvalde is still standing up for the police chief. And it's kind of like, really, this, you know, as, as we're discussing, you know, OK, first off, the guy still has a job, but like the mayor is still supporting him and still, um, you know, there, there doesn't seem much interest at all in either accountability or even figuring out, you know, what happened or how do we prevent this from happening in the future? But again, when you've got, you know, when you've 
got 20 armed cops on the scene and they're not doing anything. Um, you know, like, what more do you want? Yeah, I think I think this is a bigger problem than one cowardly, poorly trained rural police department. This is an attitudinal problem. I mean, remember that with the UPS truck was hijacked. Right. And you had cops that? hiding behind cars where there were people right. that ended up just shooting the hostage. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. They're using people as human shields to just fire wildly at this truck and kill the guy who'd been taken hostage. Well, did you happen to see this yeah. this asinine statement from the, the Texas Department of Public Safety? Uh, the, the, the spokesman was giving an interview and he defended the cops and he said, and this is an actual quote. He said, they could have been shot. They could have been killed if they had gone into the school. Yeah. Well, that's that's their job. Yeah. In any other industry in America, we just said this a minute ago. If you are unable or unwilling to do your job, you are fired. Right. You're fired. So, Paul, my question then is, it, is it even possible to change an attitude like this when when like the go to response is, well, you know, bullets were flying and, and they could have been shot or the UPS guy is taken hostage. And, well, the cops have to hide behind other people because they could be shot. How do you how do you even change an attitude like that? I don't think you can. I mean, that's almost the, it's the how do you hire for bravery? Yeah. Or- Hire for you know whatever, but but I'll just say this, John. I was I was a military policeman. Um, granted, it was a long time ago. It was the early 1980s, and again, I we, we didn't have all this benefit of, uh, of this research or studies of mass shootings. Was fortunately we didn't have a lot back then. But the basic training is just you know, hey, if you're if if you're in law enforcement, you hear gunfire, you go identify the source of it, figure out what's going on. Yeah either arrest or incapacitate them. And the other thing too, John, is, you know, you're, you're a CIA officer. Uh, how many dynamic entries did you do? Lots, actually. Okay. I mean, and you realize, and, you know, I think that's just it. Anytime you're doing a dynamic entry or, or you're going up against armed opponents. Yes. Yeah. You do know that there's a, re, that there's a possibility. You bet you do. Like it. Yeah. But that's what you're being paid to do. And you have to rely on your training and the fact that you're, you have the element of surprise and you're smarter than the bad guy, right? You've been trained and trained and trained until they can't train you anymore. Yeah. I have to just do it. Just do it. It's as simple as that. That's why maybe you think maybe I need to be a desk jockey. Exactly. Sure. Do something else. Exactly. degree was good. (laughs) Exactly right. Michelle put something uh, in our, in our notes here that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's kind of fun. Susan Sarandon tweeted something. Um, She, she, tweeted a screen capture of a Joe Biden tweet from November 1st, 2020. So three days before the election, he said, it's long past time we take action to end the scourge of gun violence in America. As president, I will ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines, implement universal background checks and enact other common sense reforms to end our gun violence epidemic. And then yesterday he tweeted, or he told the Hill, um, I can't just dictate this stuff, meaning gun control. Yeah. <laughs> so which one is it? Either you're going to lead on this or you're not. And if you're not, then get out of the way and let somebody else lead. That's what this comes down to. Paul, any, uh, any final thoughts before we let you go? 
Yeah, I think that one of the things, too, that also um, I think is ignored in the fact that to the extent that, you know, the United States is the only country in the world that seems to have our children being murdered um, on such a mass scale on, on a regular basis is I really think that, you know, mental health, really the lack of any type of public mental health program yes. or, public, or public mental health treatment program is sadly lacking in this country. And I think that's also one of the things we have huge numbers of people that are mentally ill. They don't receive any treatment for it. And I, and I think this is an integral issue with the discussion around health care, yes. mm-hmm. health insurance. And the fact that most health, health insurance programs do not cover mental health um, treatment. And, and I think that one of the things is when you look at the profile of the vast majority of mass shooters, they're suicidal. They've decided they're not coming home. They, when they go, when they pick up their gun and go do what they're going to do, they've already made the decision. They are not going to bed that night. That's right. And the fact that we don't have any type of public health, uh, mental health treatment program, um, I, I think is, you know, one of the glaring uh, problems in this country really, but it's, 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 a, it's an integral part of the, of the issue of not having um, health insurance or just general health programs in this country. And I think that, um, you know, well, a lot of people like to talk about gun control. I think there's a lot of countries that have a lot of guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Central America is a washing guns. There's very violent countries and everything else, but they're not murdering their children. Yeah. And, no. and I think that that's kind of one of the big things is, you know, what sets the United States apart from these other countries? I think you've hit the nail on the head. We, we have a serious mental health problem. Uh, in this country, and we're just not addressing it. Well, that was Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have a few final headlines to slide in. And I just wanted to know, I don't know how many people out there listening watched the the Champions League final on Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, it was Saturday. Um, But when I turned it on, if you, you turned it on... Uh, I was expecting to be a little bit late and then the, the match was delayed and it was delayed. And it turns out, I mean, I don't know if uh, if this is France, it, the the final was in Paris. I don't know if this is UEFA, but you had the spectacle of tens of thousands or thousands of Liverpool fans not being able to get into the stadium. And I remember the initial response. And again, like it's it's Liverpool that suffered the Hillsborough disaster That's in right. 1989, where 97, 97 people were killed because of security incompetence and negligence. That's right. And for years, they tried to blame it on bad behavior, yes. rowdy behavior. Yeah, by the fans, <laughs> when it was just very clearly not that. It was, it was disorganization. That happened again. And you had... You know, thousands of people stuck outside, unable to get into the stadium, who've paid a lot of money for these tickets. And in some cases, you know, there are interviews with different people who were there. They got to the stadium 
hours before yes. the match was supposed to start. As they were instructed to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's already a huge buildup when they get there. There's no way in. They ended up being tear gassed. I mean, just just unbelievable uh, treatment in Paris by it, it really. I mean, nobody should get this treatment, but exactly exactly the fan base uh, that you really shouldn't try this for. And again, it was it was uh, gratifying the the pregame announcers who were, you know, had another half hour to talk, uh, were not having it yes. when, you know, authorities were like, oh, there's some, you know, they're they're rioting outside. They were like, we've heard we've yeah. heard this before. Right. And, you know, why? Why have you got one little checkpoint for everybody to come through? So That's right. Shame. Yeah, <laughs> shame I on think you, you are exactly Paris. right. Yeah. Outrageous. Um, also an outrageous um, result in the game, but that's fun. I was just personally <laughs> disappointing. I don't have anything really to complain about. Yeah. I wanted to talk for a second about the uh, the Pennsylvania Senate race. Oh, with your guy. It's not decided yet. It crazy. I mean, this race was, what, over a week ago now, mm-hmm. or it was a week ago today. Mm-hmm. And they're still counting these, these ballots. We're talking about the race between David McCormick and Mehmet Oz, mm-hmm. Dr. Oz. Uh, they've initiated this recount. 1.8 million uh, votes were cast. And they're separated by like by like 770 votes. That's how close it is. So um, last week, David McCormick filed a lawsuit in state court asking that 900 absentee ballots that didn't have a date on them be counted. So mm. in Pennsylvania, when mm-hmm. you file an absentee ballot, you have to sign the envelope and you have to date it. So these are 900 people who signed it, Mm -hmm. but didn't date it. Mm -hmm. So Oz's people are arguing those are invalid votes. You can't count them because people were too stupid to follow the directions and put a date on it. And McCormick is saying, no, they made a mistake, but they, their intention was clear now. And, and the envelopes are sealed. So we don't know who they were voting for, whether it was Oz or McCormick. Well, Oz doesn't, won any more votes because he's ahead by 770 and that's good enough for him. Right. So McCormick is suing. I mean, what do you do in a situation where like you're supposed to do these two things? Yeah. And you don't do it. And I mean, again, it comes down to are we are we missing the forest for the trees? Right. Are we looking at a small process error and and disenfranchising a bunch of people? But then at the same time. You know, games got to have rules. Do you remember (laughs) the hanging chads from 2000? Yeah. yeah. So it's clear that those people intended to vote by poking the chad out. Yeah. But the chad was still hanging. But that's not the, I feel like that is far more marginal. That's a, that's a like physical issue. My own belief is if somebody, if somebody made their uh, intention clear, Mm -hmm. that's a vote. Yeah. That should be counted. We should be encouraging people to vote. Yeah. Um, there was something else that, that was on my mind about this, uh, about this. Oh, yeah. Also, over the weekend, uh, Dr. Oz took Donald Trump's uh, advice and declared victory, declared victory. Yeah. He announced yeah. himself as the presumptive nominee. I mean, again, I would like to say not just Donald Trump, uh, Pete Buttigieg. 
Pete Buttigieg yeah. in, in Iowa. In Iowa. Yeah, took uh-huh. that page. Yeah, and look, that's right. Yeah, now, he's, now he's a transportation uh, minister. You know, I know we're not in the UK, but Secretary <laughs> of Transportation. Hey, uh, it looks like this is a, a report from the Wall Street Journal. Looks like Lloyd Austin uh, next month is going to meet the Chinese defense minister face to face for the first time. Oh, that's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Although remember that State Department, that early State Department meeting where uh, voices were raised and people were yelling at each other. So let's hope that this does not have that kind of tenor. Gosh, I hope not. Yeah. Uh, Several years ago, there was a fist fight between the American ambassador to Qatar and the Turkish ambassador to Qatar over an insult to Hillary Clinton. Okay, we well, don't want now you've like given us to something to hope for. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to our guests and our engineers and producers today. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>